Coming up on Golf Today, the bucket hat wearing Joel Damon stops by to talk hot dogs and his upcoming appearance on Golf Channel Academy tonight. What wisdom will he impart to the masses? And Willie Mack III continues to make moves in the pro game, securing eight guaranteed starts on the Corn Ferry Tour in 2023. He'll join us to talk Q School and his long journey to this moment. And a big name in architecture, Tom Doak, hops on the show to chat about his handiwork at this week's PGA Tour stop, Memorial Park. Won't want to miss it on Golf Today. Golf Today. Golf Today on Tuesday. Damon Hack alongside Eamon Lynch. Golf Week magazine, buddy. Social media yesterday was a buzz. You see the picture floating around. Tiger Woods caddy bib. Caddying for his son Charlie at the Nota Begay III Junior Invitational. I mean, folks went crazy. And he doesn't, Tiger doesn't need the 10% that he'd be getting from Charlie. But I'm <laughs> curious what this is worth to Charlie in the tournament. Can you imagine Charlie's opponents who are standing there trying to hit a good shot, make no. a putt, and the goat is standing there looking over them? Well, funny. It's got to be worth a couple of shots a day, right? Absolutely. The intimidation factor. Max Homa, new dad, by the way, always has something to say. He tweeted this. When I was in junior high, I played a tourney with this kid who told me he got his putter from a guy who was on the PGA Tour at the time. And I remember being really intimidated for some reason. Not sure I would have handled Tiger catting in my group too well. So we thought it'd be kind of fun to put this on social media today. Fill in the blank. If Tiger were your caddy, blank. Keep it PG. Best responses will be featured on today's show. So what do you think if Tiger was your caddy? I mean, you're, you're searching for the game and the center of the club face, what would it be if you had Tiger on your caddy? What would you talk about? You don't need caddies on the range, Damon. And mm. I, I don't leave the range anymore, so I, I can't really answer that question. There was a time when I might have answered that question, but now I'll defer to you. I mean, you're the guy who finishes T2 at Pebble. You're yeah. in need of a caddy. Well, I tell you what, I would want and I would hope that anybody that had Tiger, you want to show off a little bit for the big cat. You know, be inspired by it. What do you think you could do that would impress the big cat Damon here. This showing off, I'm curious about this now. What could you possibly do that would have Tiger Woods shocked and odd? I would say getting the ball airborne would be enough. Because listen, I mean, he's, can you imagine how many bad shots he's seen? The pro-ams that he's been a part of and folks trying to show off to him and maybe try to swing a little bit extra hard. I mean, I've watched players in pro-ams where Tiger Woods is there. I'm talking zero dark, 600, Tory Pines, and you're, not, you're really not going to impress Tiger at the end of the day, but just he's playing with, like, you know, heads of state and these business titans, and it's got to be a bit of a feather if you do pull off a great shot, maybe sink a birdie in front of the 15-time major champ. Well, there's a good chance that you'll remember it more than Tiger would. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the old cliche that for pro-ams that the pro won't be surprised when you play badly? Yeah. And they won't care if you play well? It's, it's probably true. It's an apt adage. It's a great time in sports, as you know. Houston, by the way, really the center of the sports universe of late. The Astros took down the Phillies for the franchise's second World Series title. First for Dusty Baker, by the way, as manager after 25 years for those that are in the national pastime. The excitement rolls on into this week. The PJ Tour makes its return to Memorial Park in Houston for the penultimate tournament. 
of the fall season. I tell you, Eamon, that's a pretty good players in this field. You start watching Thursday, 1 p.m. right here on Golf Channel. Put a reminder on your phone. There you see Scotty Scheffler. Nice to see Scotty you know, raised in Texas. Back to the putter with which he won four times last season. The natalie clad Joel Damon, PGA Tour winner, also in the field this week at Memorial Park. And speaking of Mr. Damon, coming off a great week in Mexico, he finished tied for third Worldwide Technology Championship at Mayakoba. Nearly aced the par 4 17th on Saturday. That's right. Nearly made a one on a par 4. That would be a really big bird in Albatross. That would impress the big cat had he been there, right? Yeah, that would have. And then final round Sunday, a little more magic on the same hole. This from distance. And this is how he finished tied third, his best finish of the year. Yeah, it's nice to see him playing well. And yeah, now he's putting on his instruction hat. You can watch Joel tonight, Golf Channel Academy, presented by PXG, 7.30 p.m. Eastern time, right here on Golf Channel. And for a little preview, Joel joins us right now from Houston. Joel, it's always good to spend some time with you, try to you know, glean some wisdom from a PGA Tour winner. We're watching your move. You have TV cameras following you all the time, but what's it like having them break down your methods and your swing up close? Yeah, I was, um, I'm not very good at explaining what I do because I don't really know what I do, I guess. Um, I just kind of keep it pretty athletic. Um, you know, try not to think too much out there. Uh, I do have a great instructor with, with Rob Rochelle who, uh, you know, kind of keeps me guided in the right direction, but uh, I try to try to simplify it as much as possible. So hopefully someone can learn something tonight. Joel, you finished top 15 in proximity to the hole on tour the last couple of years, which is why this show is focused on your iron play. Is there something a lost cause like Damon here could actually learn from watching you explain how you actually hit iron so well? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I hope so. I think... Um, I, I talked a lot about choking down on the club and, and flighting the golf ball a little bit lower. And I think that you can, you know, kind of control your distances better that way. Uh, where amateurs really struggle with that a lot of time. They don't really know how far their ball goes or, you know, the contact, if they hit one thin or they hit one fat, like the difference in the shots a lot. So um, maybe just choking down and standing a little bit closer, you can make more consistent contact and um, actually know how far your ball is going to fly. <laughs> Joel, I love what you said off the top about having no idea, you know, how you go about your business. I've talked to Justin Thomas. He has no idea how he does what he does. He just does. So how did you find the process of trying to explain how Joel Damon plays golf? Uh, well, Matt Adams is an incredible uh, host, uh, so he kind of guides me along nicely there, um, which helps a lot. But I think it's like just knowing that your feel isn't real, um, as we say out here on tour, so like what I could be feeling a certain way, I could be, you know, feeling a fade or a draw or, you know, my elbow or, you know, hips are doing something. And it's really not actually the you really break down the golf swing in slow motion. It's like you, you don't really know actually what you're doing. So um, as long as my feels are correct and the ball's kind of flying where I want it to fly with, with whatever feels I have that day. And they, they do change, you know, they, they change day to day and week to week at times. So um, like I said, you just kind of play with what you have and, um, it works out most of the time for me. Well, it certainly worked out last week down at Mayakoba, Joel, when you finished tied for third, which is your best finish of the year. So that seemed to be a course that favoured guys who not so much hit it long as hit it straight. Do you think that PGA Tour needs to test accuracy a little more often out there versus just the distance? 
Yeah, I mean, it would certainly benefit me more for sure. Um, you know, I'm not one of the longer players, but I hit a bunch of fairways and I hit a, and I hit a lot of greens. So, you know, of course, last week where there's trouble on both sides of the fairway on almost every hole um, is, is great for me. Um, I think hitting it far is a skill, though. Like, it's something that I could learn to do. I think anyone can learn to hit it further. Um, but, yeah, I, th I think there's there could be a little bit more of that out here. But um, at the same time, I mean, there's just bigger, better athletes playing. You know, technology's better. And um, I think it's a skill to learn how to hit it far, uh, you know, just as, as hitting it straight as well. So I think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with where, where everything's at right now. Joel, I love watching you at the U.S. Open at the Country Club. You finished tied for 10th. Your iron game was so sharp. You also have tied for 10th finish at the PGA Championship. When you think about your major championship history and looking forward, which major sets up best for your game and why? Probably the British Open. Um, probably the best for me. I've only played in a couple. Uh, I played okay. Um, I think it was at Royal St. George a couple years ago. Um, I think it's best because, you know, you have to flight the ball low. Uh, you, you have to use the ground. Distance really isn't a huge factor over there. It's, you know, you just have to control it. So I think that's best. Um, U.S. Opens can be if they're not overly long. Like Wingfoot was way too big of a golf course for me where Brookline um, was, was fair. Uh, the ball was running out on the ground, so it wasn't overly long. And a lot of guys were hitting hybrids or two irons off the tee when I can still hit my driver. So a course like that can, can be good. Uh, I have not played at the Masters yet. Obviously hoping to do that, but I heard that's a pretty pretty big boy golf course. So I'll stick with the U.S. Open and the British Open for me. Yeah, I've played Augusta twice. It is a big ballpark. Now, you had some great moments this past season, a wonderful run, as I mentioned, at the U.S. Open. I want to take you back to the Sony Open when your caddy, Gino, gave us a glimpse into how champions prepare for battle. My boss over there just asked me to get him a hot dog before we tee off. So here I am standing in line. He's either on 59 watch or 82 watch. I'm not sure. Well, you shot 69, 68. You just missed the cut. Is a hot dog, is that kind of your go-to <laughs> pre-game snack? I do enjoy a good hot dog. I wouldn't say it's a go-to. Um, I, I try to be slightly more nutritious than that on, uh, on game days, but um, it sounded really good at the time. It was lunchtime, and it's like the perfect snack. So uh, I've been known to, to snag something mid-round every now and then, but it, was just, uh, it just felt right before I went to the range that day. Joel, you've played quite a bit already this fall and obviously playing again this week in Houston. We don't know what next fall is going to look like. All we know is that it's going to look different from what it does now. Do you, are you a fan of what you see in terms of the changes the PGA's Tour is making with a new fall series and with these elevated events? I don't know. Like, I've been a guy who just kind of shows up at the tournaments and play golf, and if you play well, you make some good chunk of money and you just kind of keep going about, you know, your, your year and your weeks. And um, every time I kind of get caught up in that sideshow of whatever's happening and the changes get made, like, I, it's just... It doesn't do me any good. Um, in every change that's ever been made on tour, it's going to benefit some people and it's going to hurt some other people. Um, you cannot please 200 plus members. There's just no way about it. Um, so, you know, as they always say, if you just play better, um, it's really simple. Uh, you're going to be rewarded for that. Uh, you know, and you're you're not going to have to worry about too much if you play well. So, I try to just do that. Um, I let people who are smarter than me and uh, maybe some people who have a lot more influence than me uh, make all those decisions. And I just kind of show up um, and try my best wherever I'm at. 
and have a little bit of fun along the way. I want to take you back to a tweet you had a couple of weeks ago. It came right after Mr. Kepka won in Jeddah, and you tweeted, if a player wins a golf tournament in a forest and no one sees it, does it count? What do you make watching from afar now that the, the whole Live series has wrapped up for the year? What do you make of what you've seen? Uh, it's, it's, uh, I see guys playing in an exhibition and making a lot of money. Um, good for them. I think it's great for, for some of those guys who are kind of on the back end of their career and, um, to go make a pile of money. That's great. That's fine. Um, but also if you're going to go kind of make your decision, just go stay over there. If it's so great and you love it so much, then why are you trying to come back and play on the PGA tour? Um, so if you get, I just think if you make your decision, go stick with it, stay there, don't bother us anymore. Um, and all your friends on YouTube can watch you with the other thousands of people. It's been a strange season, as you know, Joel, exhausting in a lot of ways with this fracturing at the top of professional golf. Do you still find joy? Are you optimistic about the future of professional golf, no matter how you slice it? Yeah, I think so. I think I think the PJ Tour is healthy. I mean, we've had you know been going for sixty some years. We have unbelievable corporate you know sponsors. Uh, I think Jay Monahan's the right guy for the job. I still think that we have the best players in the world here. Um, do I wish that you know it wasn't the way it is now? Sure, but um, I think that the game's in a pretty good spot right now, and uh, I think the PJ Tour is going in the right direction. Uh, I think everyone, you know, who's, who's on the PJ Tour is happy. And, um, you know, if, if that other tour is going to stick around or whatever they want to do, we'll just kind of let them do their thing. And the tour is going to keep on keeping on. Joel, your buddy Harry Higgs did a really interesting interview at the weekend where he kind of opened up about the, the struggles in this game, missing cuts, also the struggles in dealing with success and, and what comes with that. Do you think people fully appreciate the kind of grind mentally that exists out there just trying to keep your head above water on the PGA Tour? No, and I mean, it's it's hard to even explain it. I mean, it's uh, it's exhausting out here at times, especially, you know, kind of being a middle-of-the-road guy, a journeyman. Um, it's just a lot of travel. It's a different hotel room. Uh, you know, I scrambled around this morning trying to figure out how to do laundry for the week. Um, I went to one place that didn't work, so now my wife is scrambling around this afternoon trying to figure out how to get your laundry done for the week. Um, it's small little things like that that add up over time. And when you play 25-plus events a year, um, you know, it's just it's, it's exhausting. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're working as hard as you can. You're putting a lot of time in practice. And a lot of times you don't see the, um, you know, you, you don't actually see in, any results, which is just really frustrating. I know Harry struggled since last spring and um, chatted with him quite a bit about it. So I think he's, he's on the right track. He's on his way back. But... There's a lot of, um, I mean, I've struggled in the past as well. Um, you just you just kind of keep your head down, and you keep grinding, and you try to stay positive. Joel, are you going to be a guy that's playing into your 50s or 60s? Bernard Langer, Padraig Harrington, you know, still working out, doing yoga, staying young? Or do you have, like, a number or an age? You know, you're 34 now where you can say, I'm done with the hotel rooms. Uh, peace out, folks. Yeah, um, my first child is due in late January, so um, I can imagine that could be probably have an impact on, on, you know, how long I play and how much I do. I mean, I'm going to play as long as I can. Um, I, I don't know what else I would do. I would be very bored at home. My wife would probably get very sick of me. Um, so I'm going to play as long as I can on tour. Um, if that's five years, if that's 10 years, that's
great. I would love to make it to 145. That'd be another 10 years out here. I think that'd be a, a, a pretty good run. But then I can, you know, my kid be 10-ish at the time. Um, so then maybe I could spend some time with them. Coach T-ball, basketball, you know, whatever it is. Uh, you know, just, just be at home with the kids. And um, I would love to play the Champions Tour as well. It just seems like a blast hanging out with your buddies and um, more laid back and play some golf <laughs> on the side. I'll hang out. So I think, uh, you know, I, I would love to play, you know, until I'm 45 out here on tour. That'd be an incredible, incredible achievement, I think, for myself. And then from there, hopefully right off in the sunset on the Champions Tour. Well, Joel, uh, best of luck this week in Houston. We'll be watching Golf Channel Academy, 7.30 p.m. in your Iron Game. Thanks for the time. Enjoy some hot dogs. Congrats on the growing family. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. Well, coming up next, feel-good stories don't feel much better than that of Willie Mack. Yesterday, he secured his status on the Corn Ferry Tour qualifying tournament. Today is a little bit less exciting for Willie, though. He gets to hang with us and talk about it. He'll be here after the break. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Golf Central Update, brought to you by Callaway Golf. On Monday, 34-year-old journeyman Bo Hogue secured medalist honours and fully exempt status through the final stage of Corn Ferry Tour Q School. After his round, Hogue was quoted as saying, as much as I want to be on the PGA Tour, I probably need to go to the Corn Ferry Tour, spend a season out there and kind of re-establish my game and hopefully come out on the PGA Tour and have my game ready to compete. As we mentioned, the winner receives fully exempt status on the Corn Ferry Tour for the 2023 season, with finishers ranked 2 through 10 on this leaderboard receiving guaranteed starts in each of the first 12 events, and finishers from 11th to 40th receiving guaranteed starts in each of the first eight Corn Ferry Tour events. And one of the great stories from Monday was Willie Mack III played college golf at Bethune-Cookman, where he won 11 times before becoming the first African-American to win the Michigan Amateur Championship way back in 2011. Also found success on the APGA Tour, made his first PGA Tour start. The 2021 Farmers following month teed it up. Genesis Invitational after Tiger Woods named him the recipient of the Charlie Sifford Memorial Exemption. Brother Alex was on the bag for every stage of Corn Ferry Tour Q School. His family was also on site, which helped make the experience for Mac even more emotional. Oh, it's special to, to have them out here. Thanks. It's special that they can come and watch me. I'm just so thankful, so grateful to be here with him. This is an important day for him. Yeah, it's, it's been a long road, but um, I, I never kept kept losing losing faith and um, never gave up. Just out there grinding on many tours is. Um, it's rough, but um, I've made some money out there and, and play well, but to 
see it all come together. It's special. Willie Max III joins us now. Willie, congratulations. Yesterday was a huge day, locking up eight guaranteed starts on the Corn Ferry Tour next season, sharing it with your family. We saw how emotional you were. How did you celebrate? Um, I, we we kind of just gave each other a hug at the end, and um, it, it was a long time coming. So I, I'm, I'm glad I could shoot a good round on the last day and, and get those eight guaranteed starts um, for the next season. Willie, you got hot early in your run, which you needed to do. What were your nerves like when you headed to the first tee, and what kind of mindset did you approach the day with? Um, I, I've been in that position a, a million times, so uh, I knew I, I need to play a solid round of golf. Um, I, I kind of used the, the Tiger mentality on, on Sunday. Um, if you can make no bogeys, it's, it's usually a good round on that last day. So um, I made a, a few bogeys, but... I think I I got off to a hot start and um, I just I just kind of kept it rolling and and I'm glad I uh, I kept it together. Willie, you said it's been a long journey. You've kept at this a lot longer than many people have. Slept in your car, had your car catch fire, lost your belongings, seen your finances dwindle. At 34, what has kept you battling? Um, it's it's really been my parents and and them really sacrificing a lot for me um I, I sometimes i i felt like giving up but i knew if it wasn't for for my parents and, and them doing the things that they have done um i wouldn't be in that position so some of those nights in the car with with no ac on in the car it was, it was rough but um, i always in the back of my head had my parents in in there and um, they they really uh, stuck by my side, and um, I'm just glad that I could uh, get my, my Corn Ferry Tour card this year. In your comments after the round yesterday, Willie, we heard you talk about how tough life was grinding on the mini tours, but you won more than 60 times out there on the mini tours. What did you learn about yourself along the way as a competitor that you relied upon yesterday and that you rely upon next year on tour? Uh, that golf is golf. It's, uh, it's an up and down down battle no matter if you're you're playing well or you're not playing well sometimes you you hit the ball well and and play like play like crap but sometimes you you hit the ball bad and, and you play good so it's just keeping a good mentality out there um positive things and and i think having my brother on the bag um each stage really kept kept me in um in a good positive mindset Willie, in my handful of interactions with you, you seem pretty reserved. How have you handled the attention and the interest in your backstory? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just kind of chill. I, I don't like the spotlight too much. <laughs> I, I kind of stay in the back, but um, I'm, I'm just glad that my parents and, and my family could, could really um, be on this journey with me. It's, it's always been a struggle, but um, I think if you, if you don't have those struggles growing up and um, you, you really don't um, take it as, as you should when, when things do go well. So I'm just really blessed and, and grateful that um, I, I kept with it and um, we're here today.
Well, you said you were impacted by a conversation you had a few years ago with the swing instructor, Todd Anderson, when you were visiting TPC Sawgrass. Todd's a guy who's worked with a lot of elite tour players over the years. What did you take away from that conversation? Oh, uh, yeah, we, we've been working together since, and, and I think that's been one of my main main things that, that has pushed me over the edge this year, um, working with him and, and really getting close to Billy Horschel um, and him giving me some, some great advice and um, win, winning his tournament twice on the APJ Tour. Uh, it's it really gave me a lot of confidence, and, and I'm glad that I could take that confidence over to um, Q School. What's the best piece of advice Billy Horschel gave you? He's a frequent guest on the show, a deep thinker, not afraid to share advice. What's the right. best thing he told you? Um, he he he's seen me get lessons with Todd, and and he just told me I, I have the game to be out there and um, just keep keep fighting and, and never give up. Also, um, and and once you get past that little stage of Q school, uh, we we had a couple of talks about. What what happens when I get to to second stage and 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 what can I prove on this year? And I really took that in the back of my head and and really dig dig deep this year. And um, I'm just glad I I got through it. When you have those kind of conversations about what to do at the next stage, it, it just reinforces that there's always another level behind where you've just climbed. Is it tough to stop celebrating the accomplishment of yesterday because you still do have another level? that you're looking to climb to get to the PGA Tour? Do you remind yourself of that, or do you allow yourself to enjoy what you've accomplished so far this week? No, I, I, I think the job just started. Um, I got back last night um, pretty early, around 8, eight or so, and, and I actually got up this morning and went to the golf course. Uh, I, just, I just know I, I, I have to work even harder now. Even though I, I got um, to this stage, um, my my goal is to get to the PGA Tour, so I, I know I have to keep working, working hard every single day, and and actually put in more work than I have um, before. But um, I always have those words in in the back of my head from my dad, and and just never give up. On that note, you've seen the competition up close. How do you set the groundwork for your training this off season? What will you focus on? Oh uh, yeah, I actually had a conversation with Todd yesterday, and and we just were going over some things that I, I think I need to improve, um, and and that's what we're going to do these next couple months before um, the first first tournament of the season, and um, hopefully we can we can improve those things pretty fast and uh, get off to a good start next year and, and see what happens. Willie, it's been amazing following your journey. A lot of people pulling for you and happy for you. Best of luck. Next season, we will speak to you soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. That is a feel-good story in golf, but how about some more stories to feel good about, Damon? And there's no better place to find this kind of material than qualifying school on, on almost any tour because it really is the meat grinder experience. I mean, I, I remember having a conversation a few years ago with Brad Faxon, who only went to Q school once mm. in his career, and he still had a vaguely haunted look on his face, as you remembered what it was like back then. To me, the story that stood out at Q School yesterday, that there were four players in the field. And let's give them a shout out here. Mason Anderson, Joe Walker, Davis Chatfield, Frankie Capan III. Mm. All of them started at the very first stage. And there are four stages. There's pre-qualifying to get into first mm. stage, first stage, second stage, final stage. They beat 446 guys 
to get out of pre-qualifying, 872 guys to make it to the second stage, 384 guys to make it into the third stage, and then there were 146 guys in the field yesterday. And these four guys survived that meat grinder. Do you know how stacked the odds are oh, against the journey that these guys have going on? And I hope that the fortitude that they take from something like this has got to stand them in good stead for 2023 on the Corn Ferry Tour. Mm. But it's a remarkable journey of how many guys started this ride to try to get the Corn Ferry Tour status. And those are the four guys who started in pre-qualifying when no one would really have given them a chance. I love that. I tell you, the odds were also stacked against Willie Mack III. And I first came aware of him. Would have been post-COVID, on like a Zoom call, post-George Floyd, was with Doug Smith and Shasta Avery Hart, Sedina Parks, Alexis Belton, some, some members of the African-American golf community, some mini tour players, Will Lowry as well. And, and to learn about Willie Mack and his story and to know how long he'd been grinding and to know that it's a small community of African-American professional golfers and it can be lonely. Uh, and to be on a call with them and to hear about their dreams and to know that the road that they take has been a little bit different and that there are still systemic barriers in a lot of areas of this game, the great strides the game has made notwithstanding. And I hope that the road for, for Willie Mack is smooth and that for someone who, by his own account, is a little bit shy, a little bit reserved, doesn't love the spotlight, that he doesn't have to carry the burden of being one of the few African-Americans in the game at a high, high level. So... Uh, I'll be pulling for him quietly, and I know the road has been very, very rough, but I know that yesterday was a very big day for him. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. You get a reminder in this game that not every hurdle that exists out there in professional golf mm. relates to simple things like birdies or bogeys. So the, the ability to actually overcome that, and you know, we've heard him talk on the show before about standing on the side of that highway a decade yeah. ago watching essentially everything he owned go up in flames in that car, and the only thing he saved from it. This is golf way. clubs. Mm. And it's been a heck of a journey to this point. And congratulations to him to getting where he is now. And that journey continues on the Corn Ferry Tour for, um, for Mr. Mack III. Stay with us, folks. It's an important week on the LPGA Tour as the top 60 players after this week's final regular season event qualify for the LPGA season-ending CME Group Tour Championship. Coming up next, Beth Ann Nichols joins the show to look ahead for the stretch run on the LPGA Tour and some of the players on the bubble. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. He plays, he caddies, he influences the future of the PGA Tour. But is Tiger Woods the biggest newsmaker of the year? Maybe not for the first time. And arguably golf's greatest living architect is joining us. Tom Doak renovated this week's PGA Tour venue in Houston, and he designed a lot more celebrated courses besides. We'll hear from one of the game's most provocative voices as Golf Today continues. Today. 
Hope your Tuesday is going well. Damon Hack alongside Eamon Lynch, Golf Week Magazine. Tom Doak joins us in just a little bit. You spent a lot of time with him. I actually caddied for Tom Doak back in the day when Sabonic opened. It was a course he designed with Jack Nicholas. Jack played Bradley Klein, caddied for Jack. I caddied for Tom Doak. I think Jack got the better end of that deal, <laughs> as he so often did on the golf course. Correct. And I spent some time with Tom Back when I was at Golf Magazine, this is almost 20 years ago, I traced uh, Tom for a week around Australia and New Zealand whenever he was opening Cape Kidnappers in New Zealand and then St Andrews Beach mm. and Barnbugal Dunes in Australia. And it's still one of the greatest, most fascinating trips I've ever had, not just from the, the lessons that you pick up from someone like Tom Doak telling you how he's working on a golf course, literally at a granular level, but just the conversations in the evening I had with him were stuck with me for a long time. Tom Doak joins us in just a little bit. As I mentioned, I caddied for Tom Doak. Speaking of caddies, Tiger Woods put on the caddy bib, set social media aflame on the back for his son Charlie at the Notre the third <laughs> junior golf national championship. So we put this on social as our question on Twitter, fill in the blank. If Tiger were your caddy blank, best responses will be featured on today's show. And it's been quite the year for Tiger, the 15-time major champ, made his long-awaited return to the Masters in April. Extraordinary performance that week. Made the cut a little over a year <laughs> after his car accident. The patrons were out in numbers for his rounds of golf, but also for his practice rounds. That Monday was like nothing I had ever seen. And then one of the more emotional moments of the year came in July at the Open, the 150th at St. Andrews. Tiger missed the cut, but you see him here crossing the Swilkin Bridge and all the questions leading up to that walk. Would he stop on the bridge? Would he, you know, take off his hat and smile? Would he walk away from the game? I mean, that was really one of the huge, huge storylines that entire week, as so often is the case with Tiger Woods, which begs the question, was he the newsmaker of 2022? Not even close. Wow. This, this might actually be the first time that Phil Mickelson has ever bested Tiger Woods in any category, because when... At some point, we're going to look back and be kind of amazed at the amount of news Phil Mickelson did make this year. And it started early when he gave comments to Alan Shipnuck that were released in February in which he suggested that he was OK with Saudi human rights abuses if it gave him leverage mm. over the PGA Tour. He then helped to launch the, the Live Golf series and, and tour with Greg Norman. He was suspended by the PGA Tour. He filed a lawsuit by, against the PGA Tour. He then dropped out of said lawsuit against the PGA Tour. He had his past gambling issues come up again as part of Alan Shipnook's unauthorised biography of him. He's living in fear of the imminent Billy Walters book with Armin Kittain, which is due out later this year. Uh, Billy Walters, of course, being the man who went to prison for insider trading in a case in which Phil Mickelson was perilously close to that as well. And his reputation was essentially left in a smoking ruin that had been so carefully constructed over so many years at the top of the game. And that's a heck of a year for making headlines by anybody's standards, much less a golfer who is, frankly, a senior tour golfer at this stage. It's been quite remarkable to watch the level of news that Phil Mickelson has generated this year. Now, can I make the argument, though, that maybe that vote would be split by Phil Mickelson and Jay Monahan and Greg Norman when it comes to the live golf situation and that Greg Norman made as many headlines and, of course, Jay Monahan having to respond and Rory McIlroy and Tiger and Ricky Fowler and these PGA Tour stalwarts kind of coming to the aid of the PGA Tour that, that Phil being a big newsmaker was 
absolutely one part of the year, but that Greg Norman had as an impactful part of this year as well, just by dint of being the face of the Live Golf enterprise. I would argue Greg Norman had less of a reputation to tarnish, even as the mm. year began. Phil's implosion has been quite remarkable. And, and everything I listed was just Phil-specific. I mean, everyone, in a way, has made headlines uh, on the lift tour. All of the guys that you've mentioned, whether it's Norman and Jay Monahan, Roy McIlroy, they've all been sort of dragged into it. Some willingly uh, have fought their corner on this. But Phil has been the central character in so much of this because no one else who's involved in this had the stature of Phil Mickelson, because whatever else he's done in his career, he is indisputably one of the 10 greatest players who've ever played this game. And the record uh, as a competitor is unimpeachable in what he's accomplished on a golf course. So to see that and then to see where we are now in terms of the, the, how the public perception of Phil has changed mm. and how, in a way, his relevancy to the, to the very tour and game that he built that reputation on... As, I mean, he didn't even defend his major championship this year. It was one of the most remarkable major championship wins we'd ever seen when he won last year at Kiowa Island in the PGA Championship. He didn't show up to defend it this year. He chose instead to make his comeback a couple of weeks later for a Saudi event in London. It, it, it really has just been one headline after another. But I get the sense that you're not giving any ground here, that you're determined to stick with the idea that Tiger is a yeah, newsmaker. I, I just feel like, you know, the, the, the reputational hit that Phil Mickelson has taken notwithstanding, only one player really, in my mind, took our breath away. And it was the same guy who's been doing it since the mid-'90s. And it was Tiger Woods. And didn't win the Masters, but the fact that he even was there to try to play and then to announce that he would play and to be on the grounds on that Monday at Augusta National and seeing crowds like this. Yeah, that's Sunday with the red shirt, but those crowds were the same. That Those patrons were 10, 15, 20 deep just to see Tiger on a Monday testing his leg and testing his golf swing. You would have thought it was a Sunday and the energy was so familiar in some senses, just in terms of the amount of people, but different in the way that it was this appreciation and this gratitude from the patrons that you're willing to put your body through this after everything you've gone through, that you're still willing to be the straw that stirs the drink. And then July, we held our collective breath wondering, would he take off the hat and stop on the Swilkin Bridge and say, I'm walking into the sunset? And it was like not a chance for him. He kept on walking and he continued his way to the 18th green. But I think until he hangs up the clubs for good, he will always be the newsmaker, as Arnold Palmer was, not just at the height of his power, but uh, in his golden years as well. I'm going to draw a distinction between needle mover and newsmaker. Okay. He's indisputably the, the needle mover in this game and has been for a quarter of a century at this point. And I, I guess you could argue the news Tiger made this year was kind of tinged with optimism. There was always mm. this hope that he was going to not just be back, but be back and competitive. And there, there were these highs and lows. You went from Augusta to the withdrawal at Southern Hills when the, yeah. he was kind of out of contention and the, the wear and tear on his body from the terrain out there was a little bit too much. And then you get to St. Andrews and all of his accumulated history there. So there's always been with Tiger the last couple of years when he's made these comebacks, a little sense of optimism mm. that, that there were better days ahead. There was none of that with Phil Mickelson in 2022. It just seems to be a, the slide towards ignominy, really. Mm. I do wonder if the newsmaker of 2023 will be uh, Rory McIlroy putting a certain garment over his shoulders in April. 
Let's hope that would be a newsmaker <laughs> for sure. We're still to come on Golf Today with just a few weeks left in the LPGA Tour season. It all comes down to the 60 players who will tee it up in the CME Group Tour Championship. The race for the CME Globe is on with stars and major champions needing to make a big week to make it to Naples. Paige McKenzie joins us to break it all down next. Welcome back to Golf Today. Let's take a look at the race to the CME Globe and see who stands where. No surprise to see Lydia Cole at the top of the list, a recent winner on the LPGA Tour, two-time winner this year. Some major champions in there as well. But this week, the focus is very much on the bubble. The top 60 players make next week's season finale at the CME Race to the Globe Championship. Some pretty big names around this bubble list, aiming with Anna Nordquist, Stacey Lewis, Arya Jutanagarn. There's a lot of star power right there. Lots to play for. Paige McKenzie joins us now with more on some notable names on that bubble. Paige, how about the Chevron Championship winner from 2021? Patty Tavitanikid of UCLA, currently number 56 in the race to the CME Glow. Yeah, she's inside the number right now and coming off of what was a dream season in 2021. You mentioned it, winning a major championship. She was rookie of the year on the LPGA Tour, but it's, it's been a different story this season. Uh, she started out really well, but it's been kind of the tale of two halves of the season. Uh, in the first part of the season, in the first eight starts, she had two top 10s. Five of those were top 25s. And then from June on, it's really been a struggle. Um, you can see eight missed cuts and withdrawals, no top 10s, no top 25s. And back in July, when she did make the cut at the Scottish Open, she gave us a glimpse into what was going on with some of her struggles. There seemed to be a bit of emotion there fighting for you, but you know, how did it feel to, to make the cut you know, ahead of a major week? I've just been going through so much in life right now, and I feel like to be able to do that today, it just goes to show that, you know, this is, this is my job, it's my career, like doing it, and I don't know what I did out there, it was pretty amazing, I mean, to come back and do even feel like I was going to do that this morning, um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's in me, and I found it today, so I'm really glad I was able to do that. It's been a tough uh, run for Patty Tavitanikit. And obviously, you know, it's easy for us to always look at numbers and forget there's a human being behind it. Um, so obviously been some struggles for her and, and heading into this week, trying to, to kind of capture and keep that top 60 spot. At least she can lean on the fact that she was tied for sixth here at Pelican last year. Maybe has a little bit of some good vibes at this golf course. And as you said, Paige, she has a little bit of headroom there at number 56 in the top 60. Somebody who doesn't have any headroom to play with. Matilda Castron, who won on the LPGA Tour last year, she's at 62nd. Are you surprised to see her on the cut line? bit. Uh, she was a, a rookie again last year. You mentioned it. She has an LPGA Tour win. It was one of the best stories, I think, coming out of 2021 is what Matilda Castron did. After winning on the LPGA Tour, she didn't have LET status, Ladies European Tour status. Um, so she wasn't eligible for Solheim Cup. 
So then she went over to Finland and ended up entering that event in her home country and won in order to get uh, Ladies European Tour status, which ultimately she was then able to participate on Solheim Cup. So as a Solheim Cup member, certainly a little bit of a surprise to be in this position. But the good news for Matilda is that she is trending in the right direction coming into this week. She comes off of a 27th place finish a couple of weeks ago and last week in Japan, a top 10 finish, uh, her third top 10 finish of the season. So likely she's carrying a lot of positive momentum into this week. She's one of the ones I'm keeping my eye on to jump into that top 60. Paige, a lot of players trying to put their foot on the gas at this point in the season. Any other notable names stand out to you? A name maybe you may be familiar with, maybe not, but Daniela Darkea is another player that's outside the number that I think has a good shot to jump inside the top 60. She sits at 65th right now, and this is a player that didn't have a lot of status on the LPGA Tour to start the season, didn't have her first LPGA start until June. She was able to parlay a top 10 in the team event at the Dow and was then able to improve her status to get into more events, and she took full advantage of that, finishing runner-up at the LPGA event in Portland in September. So in the, the short amount of events and only 10 starts on the LPGA Tour, she has two top 10s and four top 20s. She actually is a scoring average of 70.73, which sits 37th on the LPGA Tour. So for Daniela, it's been more about trying to get starts than anything. So this is another player that is trending and playing great golf. Uh, so she may be able to jump inside that top 60 to get into the CME Tour Championship, which again, for these players, it's all reset once you get in. So all that matters is that you get in. All the points go away once you tee it up next week at the Tour Championship. So, so much for these players to play for. Find a way by hook or by crook to get into that top 60 page. Thank you very much. Have a great Tuesday. Thank you. All right, folks, a reminder, you can catch live first-round coverage of the Pelican Women's Championship Thursday, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on Golf Channel. Well, Damon, Tom Doak is one of the most respected course designers in golf and is one of the sport's most intelligent and provocative voices. Pull up a chair. Tom joins us after the break. Back on golf today, the PGA Tour heads to Houston this week for the Cadence Bank Houston Open. Memorial Park Golf Course is the host site this week which is renovated by renowned architect Tom Doak back in 2019. Tell you what, special property. Again, in 1912, it's a nine-hole golf course. It's hosted the Cadence Bank. Houston Open 16 times. Winners include Arnold Palmer and Bobby Locke. And Tom Doak has been designing golf courses, Damon, for more than 30 years. He became a household name among golf fans with the opening of Pacific Dunes at the Bandon Dunes Resort in Oregon. That was back in 2001. But that's just one of many golf courses Tom Doak has designed around the world that have achieved a tremendous amount of recognition. Here are some of the courses that are ranked in the world's top 100. From Ballyneal in Colorado to Cape Kidnappers in New Zealand, Tara Eaty also in New Zealand and the Renaissance Club in North Berwick, Scotland. And we're pleased now to be joined by Tom Doak. Tom, you once told me that, that Pete Dye had given you a piece of advice that, that he thought about every course as a tournament course because that was the business Pete was in and he always focused on how the best players in the world played that course. Did you find yourself having to take that attitude to your work in Houston and how did you balance that with what the audience is the other 51 weeks of the year? 
Well, that was the, the, the reason the job was interesting to me. I mean, I've, I've spent most of my career not worrying about tour players, knowing that uh, my clients weren't the kind of people that wanted to put up that kind of money to host the best players in the world. So we were building golf courses for average golfers to play. And very interesting to switch over and have to remember all those things that I remembered when I was around the TPC at Sawgrass and PGA West 40 years ago. Wanted to ask you about that because the finishing stretch, especially a couple reachable par fours, a par five with danger, tough finishing hole. How much of that presentation was influenced by your time with Pete in general and maybe TPC Sawgrass specifically? Some yes and some no. I mean, we when I, you know, Brooks Kepka was the was the player consultant on the TPC, and to him, the most important thing was to make the the event exciting at the end and to have holes where there could be big swings in the lead instead of trying to defend par and you know worrying about what the winning score would be and ironically as it's turned out um, it's a pretty hard golf course for the winning score the winning score is relatively high in relation to par compared to a lot of tour events this time of year um, a lot of that is just that there's Bermuda rough alongside the fairways and once you're in the rough you actually have to think twice about how you're going to attack the green. Uh, the greens tend to have short grass around them and the ball rolls away from it. And if you, you know, if you're coming in out of the rough, you can't control that very well. So you have to play much more defensively. Tom, I'm curious how much you enjoy or how you manage player collaborations, if you've done others in the past, because that's a pretty big difference in mentality there between you and Brooks, where he wants drama and you're obviously focused on the design. How difficult is it to bridge that? Oh, Brooks was actually very easy to work with. I mean, he knew he wasn't really designing the whole thing. He was just providing input and a sounding board for my ideas for, you know, if I do this, how will players react? And he was great in that role. Um, and, but he accepted that that was the role. I mean, collab, you know, we collaborate with tons of people on every project we do. The, the key to the collaboration is, you know, ultimately, most of the time now, I'm going to make the final decision. I'm going to take in a bunch of input from, you know, client, consultants, shapers, all the rest. But at the end of the day, you know, they're relying on me to make the final call. Tom, when you complete a project like Memorial Park, the golf course still continues to evolve. It changes. Trees grow. The grass grows and encroaches. How much do you still look back at the project to see how it is evolving? Or do you just move on? Um, it's, you know, it's hard to find time to, to get back to every place you've ever built. It's, it's, it's easier earlier in your career. And then once you've got 30 golf courses under your belt, you're not getting back to all of those at the same time, you're continuing to build new things. Um, my contract for this one was that I would come back for the tournament the first couple of years and see how it played and consider any changes and, I think we are going to make a change to the 17th hole after the event this year, but we really haven't done anything else. You know, Tom, Jim Crane, the Astros owner, has said down the road, you know, we'll get lucky and have a major championship at Memorial Park, a U.S. Open or a PGA. The course could handle it in his mind. What would it take in terms of tweaking it, if at all, to host a major championship there? I don't think it would take much in terms of, I mean, they would narrow the fairways some, and that Bermuda rough would be that much more in play in the summer months. You know, it's kind of half dormant this time of year. 
um, in the spring or summer, it would be a difficult golf course. And, and those, those shots around the greens would come into play for a lot more of the time because they'd be missing more greens. Tom, let's move on to some of your more current work. You just finished the Lido course at Sand Valley Resort out in Wisconsin. And for architecture aficionados, the Lido is kind of this mythical nirvana that was lost a long time ago. Tell us why it, it matters so much to architecture fans and what drew you to re recreating it out in Wisconsin? Um, I guess it matters so much because Charles Blair McDonald only built a dozen golf courses in his career, and Lido was considered one of the two or three best, along with the National Golf Links uh, and probably Chicago Golf Club. And, you know, for that to have gone away 75 years ago, but there's still so many pictures of it. And then the backstory of it's so interesting that, you know, they actually they did like a a magazine contest in the UK to for to have somebody help design the 18th hole. And it was won by this fairly unknown doctor from Leeds named Alistair McKenzie. So, so there, so there's a lot of history that went with it, and it disappeared. Um, you know, and then the challenge of it to, you know, the only reason we could really consider rebuilding the golf course is because it was built from scratch originally. It was kind of a swampy area. They landfilled it up and created all these sand dunes and undulations like McDonald wanted to. And uh, so we could do the same thing from a flat piece of sandy ground, you know, if we could figure out in enough detail exactly what was there. And luckily, there's so much historical stuff laying around on it. We, we got to the point where we thought, yeah, this is, this is doable. You're spending, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of time in Wisconsin because you're also working on Sedge Valley, which is another golf course at the Sand Valley Resort. How do you distinguish this golf course from not only your other work at that resort, which might be a little easier compared to Lido, but to the other courses that already exist there? Um, the idea behind Sedge Valley, the new course, is that we're, we're building something that's sort of deliberately shorter <laughs> and closer together. And, and you know, that's what's going to make it more playable instead of having to build it, you know, long and really wide <laughs> compensate. So, um, you know, I think this golf course is only going to be 62 or 6,300 yards from the back tees, but everybody that's been around it is like, this This might be the toughest course at the resort because the greens are sized similarly. There's a lot of skinny little targets, and you get at the wrong angle to hit into them with a wedge, and it's still a pretty hard shot. Tom, we're going to take a look at some of your notable designs. I'm curious, you know, are you like a fine wine? Are golf course architects <laughs> better with age, more arrows in the quiver in your 60s than maybe you had in your 40s? I hope I've got a few left because we've got about eight or 10 new <laughs> projects to build here in the next three years. <laughs> so I, I hope we're going to maintain the energy to do all of those. Um, you know, the, the main thing about it is, you know, I don't think my ideas are much different <laughs> than they were 25 years ago. Um, what's different is I, I've got more practice and the guys that work for me have more practice in building golf courses. And that you do just keep getting better and better. And then the only trick is to not, you know, to keep being driven to do something a little different instead of just doing a repeat of the last golf course you built that was successful. That's ah, a great philosophy. Great point that you make, folks. Tom Doak is going to stick around for another segment as we go to break. Can't see enough. 
the Oregon coastline, Pacific Dunes, Band and Dunes, so good. Dream Golf, back in a bit. Welcome back to Golf Today. We're enjoying a conversation with Tom Doak, one of the world's great golf course architects. And here are the top 100 courses, according to golf.com, that Tom Doak has designed the highest ranked Tara Eti in New Zealand, Bandon Dunes, obviously Pacific Dunes course, Barnbugle Dunes, where I first met Tom Doak way back when. That was co-designed with Mike Clayton, was one of his workers on that. Cape Kidnappers, Ballyneal, St. Patrick's Lynx in Donegal in Ireland, which opened a couple of years ago, and the Rock Creek Cattle Company in Deer Lodge, Montana. Mm, an amazing career. We welcome Tom Doak back to the program. Speaking of your formative years, you spent a year in the British Isles after Cornell visiting golf courses, digging into the culture. What was the greatest benefit of that experience for you? You know, I thought I was just going to see all those great golf holes and what made them tick. But at the end of the day, living in the UK for a year and seeing their attitude toward golf and how it was so much more a part of life and really how simple they kept golf, that's been a huge part of what I do and that the kind of minimalist ethic that we have. Tom, you were only in your mid-20s when you designed your first golf course at High Point in Michigan. And, you know, the course had a colorful history. You had a colorful history with the then-owner. The course kind of went to seed. Now it's coming back. What does it feel like? Is it an emotional kind of circling for you to come back to this project now? Definitely. I mean, you know, my history with it was was pretty emotional when you when it's the first golf course you've done on your own and you you know it's the only course I shaped all the greens myself so so when it was struggling and I wasn't getting along with the ownership well that was hard and then you know and then plus it's across town from where I live here in Traverse City so you you, you know I sort of watched it go downhill and that was really tough um, but you know it closed in 2008 the client had passed away and his son was losing money on it in the recession and didn't want to keep it open. He sold it and like half of it now is a hops farm. Um, but there, there is enough, you know, they, most of the back nine is intact and there's enough more ground back there um, that they acquired while we were building the golf course originally that there's room to not tear up the farm and just build 18 new holes behind. So we'll, we'll be keeping six or seven of the holes from the original course and really some of the best holes from the original course. And at the same time, it's a new project and there, there are new things to build too. So it's really exciting. And, you know, it's really exciting to be working next to home, even though I've got a lot of other things on my plate. So it's not like I'm going to be in town every day. Back when you built that course, Tom, you had already established a reputation uh, as an architecture critic with your writings in Golf Magazine and elsewhere. You were considered opinionated, perhaps a little brash, sometimes difficult. And that was a perception other architects were happy to encourage. At what point sure. in your career in this journey do you think you left that perception behind and just became known for the work that you're putting out? I'm not sure that I've ever left that reputation totally behind because people like to repeat the same things they've always, you know, they, they, they have a backstory of you in the back of their head and it's really hard to change. Uh, certainly, you know, Pacific Dunes put my career on another level as far as having built a truly great golf course. And and that job led to a lot more opportunities with really great pieces of land, which, you know, 
hardly anybody has ever had a chance to do that as consistently as I have over the last 20 years, just, you know, one great side after another. And your early book, The Confidential Guide to Golf Courses, has kind of become a holy grail among golf course uh, aficionados. Of all the criticism that's been leveled at you over the years for your work specifically, what piece mm -hmm. of criticism most wounded you? You know, my actual design work, you know, there's always criticism and, you, you know, you do take, you know, I've learned that people do take it personally. You're trying to just write about the golf course and, you know, critique a golf hole or two. But uh, because the writing about golf design is so connected with who the architect is, you know, it becomes personal and then it's hard not to take it personally as well. Have you had to develop a thick skin through the years or has it been kind of water off a duck's back anyway? Or do you kind of feel those those criticisms? Oh, you feel them. But, you know, I mean, I knew from when I started, if you dish it out, you got to be able to take it. And I'm fine with that. You know, at the end of the day, everything we do is kind of a matter of opinion. So what matters is whether people like the finished product or not. What keeps you up at night as an architect these days? There's so many issues, water, sustainability, how difficult it is to play the game, bringing, you know, a new audience to the game. What keeps you up at night as an architect? The main thing that keeps me up at night is jet lag because I'm going <laughs> between a lot of places. Um, as far as the future of golf and building more courses, I think water is the number one issue. It, you know, I happen to live in the Great Lakes where it's not as much of an issue, but certainly on a lot of the projects we build, you know, both quality of water and quantity of water that and and the politics of it, of, you know, being able to use water in a place that might be undergoing drought conditions is really tough. Tom, it's been almost 20 years ago that you and I were sitting in a little restaurant in Havelock North, near Cape Kidnappers in New Zealand. I asked you a question that night that you said you wouldn't touch with a 100-foot pole, which was, who is the most <laughs> overrated architect in golf? I know you're still not going to answer it now, but you pay a lot of attention to what's going on in this game. Who are the architects that we're going to be talking about 10, 15 years from now that golf fans probably haven't heard very much about? Well, I mean, you know, I'm not a politically correct person, but the, the hard part for me is like, I think a lot of them are people that either used to work for me or for Bill Corr and are out on their own now and we're kind of competing with them or people that still work for us. And so, so it's really difficult for me to pick between them all. Uh, you know, I, I have said I'm, I'm going to do a new project in the UK, at, uh, you know, next door to Gill's course at Castle Stewart. Um, and, uh, you know, as busy as we are in the States right now, the only reason I'm taking that job in Scotland is because I've got a really sharp young man named Clyde Johnson who's been working for me for the last 10 or 12 years. He's from over there. Uh, he really needs a chance to show what he can do on his own. He's starting to get consulting jobs over there. But he'll run that job for start to finish. And it's, it's you know, it's his time to shine. It's not that, you know, We'll really collaborate on it. I don't know if you want to call it a co-designer or not, but he's going to have a lot to do with it. And, you know, the unfortunate part is that 
my three associates who have been with me the longest, Eric Iverson, Brian Schneider, and Brian Slonick, um, I think they're all as good as anybody who's working out there today. But because they're under me, they don't get the credit for it. And people don't understand how much of it they can really do. Well, Tom, uh, you've made a lot of wonderful golf courses, a gift to the game. Your honesty is a gift to the game as well. Thanks for joining us. We'll speak to you down the road. Thanks, guys. Take care.